You've created your business and now it's time to protect it. Whether it's your podcast, speaking engagements that you do virtually or live on in-person stages or the community that you've built, you want to make sure that what you've created is taken care of and well protected. This is where AWB contract templates come in. They're customizable, quick and easy to complete and cost a fraction of working with a lawyer one-on-one. They have tons of options available so you can choose the ideal one for your business needs. It's an instant download. You get a Word doc template, you fill in the blanks and in about 20 minutes, you're all done. Visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash contracts today to pick out your new business contracts. And when you check out, be sure to use the code play for 20% off your contract purchase. That's P-L-A-Y in all caps for 20% off. Protect your business with AWB contract templates. All of those communities absolutely need health advocacy. I mean, everybody needs health advocacy. I strongly believe that. But if you're a member of a community who historically and even now today continues to receive disparate care in the healthcare system, you need it more than anybody else. When you're ill, this is the moment when you hope that you can be cared for with compassion, consideration, and competency. But that's not what always happens. And so prompted by my own difficult experience during an illness recently, today, myself and my guests are going to discuss what health advocacy is and why it is a part of creating health equity today on Pause on the Play, where we are challenging you to examine your beliefs, question your predisposed notions, and consider realities you may be unfamiliar with in order to understand that they too are real. I am your host and conversation MC for the day, Erica Corday, here to get the dialogue going. So as I mentioned, I had a health situation and it was a few months ago and The long and short of it was I ended up finding out that I had a kidney stone and I ended up having some complications with that. And it was extremely painful to just go through the health piece of it. If you have never had a kidney stone, it is not fun (laughs) at all. And at the same time, the way that I was treated at some of the points, you know, through this experience did involve racism it did involve biases and it also involved some healthcare professionals simply not taking responsibility and accountability where things just weren't done so well. And so I think that we can often end up in this situation of things being challenging and not being able to get out of the emotional piece of it being able to figure out what's next. So I'm really excited today to talk with Dr. Nicole Rochester about what happens in these moments where things aren't going so well. How can we try to recenter ourselves and to have someone else that can help us with advocacy? And if we don't have that person that is there with us, how we can actually tap on the advocacy support within the healthcare system in order to get to a better place and be able to better learn how we can support ourselves and our medical professionals in actually getting us what we want and what we need. So without further ado, 
Let's get into it. All righty. So the thing that I want to talk about today, um, we talk a lot about storytelling. And what happens sometimes is that storytelling ends up being a huge supporting piece of reconsidering your normal, which you know we talk about because I don't want you to just think your normal is the only normal. And I had an experience a few months ago when it came to being sick and having a horrible experience. And a lot of the people that I talked to when this was happening, after it was happening, when they were like, are you okay? Are you feeling better? So many people were like, I have never had that happen to me. Or I I don't know anyone that's had that happen. And so often, I don't think that people are aware of how much racism is embedded in medicine and the medical system as a whole. And so I wanted to have this conversation, not just for my storytelling, but also bringing in an expert to be able to support with this. And so I'm extremely excited to be able to introduce you to Dr. Nicole Rochester. She's a pediatrician, a health advocate, a TEDx speaker, a health equity champion, and the CEO of Your GPS Doctor LLC an innovative company that helps individuals with chronic illnesses and their family caregivers to navigate the healthcare system. Dr. Rochester was inspired to start her company after caring for her late father and witnessing the complicated healthcare system from the other side of the stethoscope. A native Maryland resident like me, Dr. Rochester is a proud graduate of John Hopkins University and the University of Maryland School of Medicine. She's happily married and the mother of two amazing young adult daughters. Welcome, Nicole. How are you? Thank you, Erica. I am well and so excited and honored to be here with you today. I seriously can't wait because again, first of all, realizing that you were local, I was like, oh, I need to talk to Nicole. (laughs) And you were so graciously um, connected with me by one of the amazing members of our community. And one of the things that I think was so important was for me to be able to connect with someone that I felt like actually understood on a personal level what it can feel like to be Black in America and to have a moment where they themselves or someone that they love is ill um, and kind of what that can look like. And so as we begin to get into that, I'd like for a second for you to just kind of share something with the listening audience about what makes you who you are, Nicole the human. Oh man, I'm so many things, you know? I think yes. in this season of my life, I will describe myself as a risk taker, mm. as uh, it's someone committed to diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti-racism, uh, a mom, a wife. And um, yeah, I, you know, I think in the past, I always started with, I'm a physician and I am mm-hmm. and will always be a physician, but I have transitioned out of clinical medicine and I am learning how to still learning how to redefine myself. So yeah, that's how I would describe myself today, but I am a work in progress. (laughs) Yes, that. And I think so often many of us have been conditioned to lead with what we do and it doesn't really give that tie-in of who we are and why we are that way at that moment. 
And what you said is important because we are a work in progress. So whoever we are right now, this really is just who we are today, right now, the second. And the evolution is constant. And I think it's so important to be able to not only provide that space for ourselves to acknowledge that, but modeling for others like, hey, you're a work in progress too, and it's okay and, and even preferable to acknowledge that and to really lean into that. Absolutely. So being that you're a health advocate, before we dig into what prompted you to become one, um, I always like for people to make sure that they're not listening and hearing a term that they're like, I don't know what that means, but I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to like stop and go figure it out or I don't want to acknowledge that I don't know. So I'm just going to try to figure it out. So for clarity, can you describe what a health advocate does? Yes. And, and I really appreciate this question, Erica, and I will share with you and your audience transparently that I didn't even know what a health advocate was. I knew what I wanted to do and we'll get into that, but I didn't know that there were already people doing this. So a health advocate sometimes also referred to as a patient advocate, is someone who in a professional capacity helps patients, and in my case, also family caregivers, understand and navigate their medical care and the system in which we receive that care. So just as a few quick examples, I help people understand the medical terminology that the doctors and the other healthcare professionals are using. So we often serve as medical interpreters. Um, I am the liaison between my clients and the healthcare team. And so, you know, those challenges that perhaps you faced during your recent experience, sometimes being able to communicate effectively with healthcare professionals, being able to get them to understand what your concerns are, helping them escalate concerns, which unfortunately is often necessary. Um, It also may involve helping to coordinate care, uh, which may be corralling all of the different people that are managing a particular patient, getting them in the same room or or now virtually, um, helping them find second opinions if necessary, helping them vet uh, hospitals and physicians and nursing facilities and assisted living facilities and being able to find quality care and being able to know, you know, where is the appropriate place for myself, for my family member. Um, So a host of activities, but all of it really comes down to helping people really partner with their healthcare team and show up fully. And ultimately, my goal is to help them advocate for themselves so that I am no longer needed. So first of all, thank you for even laying that out, because I think that there's a lot of pieces there that I'll acknowledge for myself when the term patient advocate was was mentioned to me, I was like, I don't know what that means. Like I, I have, you know, I can, you know, I can talk for myself and say, this is what I want or what I need. But it was in that moment of needing for someone to be that go-between to acknowledge when I received care that was unacceptable, why it was unacceptable, why it shouldn't happen to someone else and what needs to happen next and understanding that it wasn't simply, oh, I'm, I'm putting in a complaint. I'm complaining or I'm saying, <laughs> hey, this didn't work. And it was bigger than that. And I really appreciated learning that that advocacy piece of it was partially 
for what you needed in your situation, but also being able to draw attention to where in the system something or someone failed. Yes. I don't think that that piece is acknowledged enough. And the acknowledgement that it is it is not complaining. It really is, hey, this isn't how this is supposed to be done and you don't have to just accept it. And I think that that piece is what for some of us we were conditioned like, you know, you don't complain. And it's like, no, this is not complaining. This is acknowledging where things can be done different. And I'm giving you an opportunity to do it by having this conversation and having this health advocate or this patient advocate to support you in it is a huge piece of being able to make that happen. Um, And so I'd love for you to kind of share a little bit of what prompted you to step into that role out of clinical medicine. So I was, I I still am a pediatrician. All I ever wanted to be was a pediatrician. If you had told me five years ago that I was going to leave medicine, I would have laughed out loud. But back in 2010, my late father who had a lot of chronic health conditions. I mean, pretty much, you know, all of the classic ones that plague us in the Black community, diabetes and high blood pressure and heart disease. And ultimately he was on dialysis and just had a lot of complications. And so as his health declined and his marriage ended, he needed help. And it became very obvious to my two older sisters and I who that he just could not continue to manage his own health on his own. And so we were kind of rather suddenly deployed as caregivers for our dad. And so with it being three of us, which is a blessing because many people have to do this on their own, we struggled a bit in the beginning and fumbled a lot of balls. And then we finally figured out, okay, let's divide and conquer. So I, as the physician in the family, was given the responsibility of managing my dad's medical care. And I'm like, oh, I got this. Like, I'm a doctor. I have been practicing medicine for, you know, over 10 years. Like, this is going to be easy. So I started accompanying my dad to his medical appointments. And unfortunately, because of his illnesses, he was in and out of the hospital, lots of emergency department visits, you know, some some rehab facility stays. Ultimately, we had to move him into an assisted living facility. And so to make a very long story short, I saw very early on just the significant difference in the world of adult medicine compared to what I have been used to in pediatrics, just in the way that, and this is not a dig on adult doctors because I have many adult doctors who are friends and colleagues, but what I experienced with my dad is that the way that he was treated was very different. And um, that's for a lot of reasons. But, you know, he wasn't humanized and, um, you know, there were just very brief curt discussions. And so when I presented as his caregiver, as his daughter, I didn't tell people what I did at first. And I've always been this way. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not the person that, you know, bursts into the exam room like I'm a doctor. I just, you know, I'm sitting there like I'm a regular old patient and I want to see how you're going to treat me. So I did that with my dad. I really just wanted to be his daughter. And but within a few encounters, just seeing that he was not receiving appropriate medical care and seeing that when I would speak up as his daughter or when I would try to offer information that was extremely helpful to his physicians and the other members of his team, and I was essentially dismissed or silenced, then I had to start you know, flexing my doctor muscles, so to speak, 
And what I saw, Erica, what I noticed is that as soon as I started to share with people what I did for a living, suddenly I became more important. And suddenly Mm -hmm. the doctors had more time. And suddenly they were leaning in and they were more interested in the same things that I was trying to share when I was his daughter. And Mm -hmm. also as he got sicker, I started to really see how not just my medical knowledge, but my knowledge of the system and knowing, you know, okay, everybody has a boss, but knowing like who that boss is in the hospital and knowing, you know, how to, as we, as you talked about how to complain, but how to complain effectively. And, and honestly, the influence, unfortunately, that came after people knew that I was a physician, I saw that that afforded my dad a huge advantage And after we would have near misses or after I would catch a medical error that could have literally killed him, I would just think, oh, my gosh, like what are all the other 45 plus million family caregivers in the United States doing? And it would bother me so much that this was great for my dad. But I knew that there were so many other people who didn't even know that they weren't receiving proper care. And so that just, I couldn't unsee that. And so after my dad passed away in 2013, you know, I was still practicing pediatrics and I was loving, I mean, absolutely loving my job, but there was this pull and it started out as like a little bit of a whisper. And I just kept getting this feeling that I was supposed to be doing something else. But when you spend your entire life planning and training for this one thing and investing and it's really hard to say, okay, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. So I pushed back for a while. <laughs> and then finally, I just, I could not ignore it. I mean, God was just like, okay, now I'm right. knocking gently. <laughs> um, and so it, it be, it, he made it very clear to me that it was time for me to pivot and, and help others in the way that I was able to help my dad. Well, first off, I want to acknowledge that I'm glad that you were able to help your dad in that way, because there's a lot of us that um, you know, when we are having to watch a loved one just kind of have to go through that, it is very challenging. So, you know, mm-hmm. my condolences for losing your dad. Cause I know, um, I, lo- I lost my dad at 12 and I definitely felt like there wasn't advocacy. You know, he was 37 and had leukemia and it, you know, he found out in September and he passed away in January. And there were so many questions that I don't know if anyone knew how to ask it, who to mm-hmm. ask it to, and what the right answer was. Because sometimes you'll get an answer and you're like, well, I don't know if this is the wrong answer. So I don't even know if I'm supposed to push back at this point. Exactly. And my condolences to you as well. And Erica, what you just said is so important because when you don't know what you don't know, you know, we know in any industry that can be a problem, right? But when it comes right. to medical care, that can be your life. Right, right. And the interesting part, of, of this. And again, I, I have watched family members and friends and people that, that look like me as well as my own experiences and knowing that it happens way too often, because honestly, once is too often. So I'll Mm -hmm. acknowledge that, but you know, I have to ask the obvious question, which is in your opinion, do you think that there's, you know, certain groups of people or, or demographics, um, parts of society that need health advocacy more than others because they're not supported as well? Unequivocally, yes, absolutely. And certainly, you know, in my own personal experiences with my dad and other family members and friends um, and seeing how some of my own patients 
have been treated, you know, by um, colleagues. And these are great, you know, people who are otherwise great people. And certainly in my work now as a health equity consultant, absolutely. The answer to your question is yes. I mean, we know that, you know, Black people, Latino people, you know, American Indian, um, anybody from a marginalized community, you know, that includes people who are under-resourced in terms of income, uh, people with disabilities, people from the LGBTQ community, you know, all of those communities um, absolutely need health advocacy. I mean, everybody needs health advocacy. I strongly believe that. But in if you're a member of a community who historically and even now today continues to receive disparate care in the healthcare system, you need it more than anybody else. I agree. And so you use the term health equity. And so again, I would love for you to, from your lens, kind of explain what that is and how it's a part of the healthcare system. Sure. So in in short, health equity is ensuring that everyone has what they need in order to achieve their best health. And it's really important to distinguish equity from equality, especially- Thank you for saying that. Oh my God, thank you. (laughs) Oh my God, I have to say this because especially here in the US, you know, there's this rhetoric uh, about, you know, equal opportunity and I did it. Why couldn't you? And I pulled myself up from my bootstraps and all that crap. So, you know, in, in, in terms of healthcare, you know, equality is just giving everybody the same thing and basically saying, all right, you know, you, you go out there and get it. Like you have health insurance. There's some doctors in your area. Whereas health equity is acknowledging that because of structural racism, because of the bias that healthcare professionals have, that we all have, that we cannot get rid of, that's part of our brain, literally. And um, because of the differences and opportunities that in our country are largely along race lines that no, you don't give me what everybody else gives get, gets. You give me something different. And in many cases, it may be more. And so it's acknowledging that, for example, Black people are more likely to be obese, not because we're lazy, not because it's not even just as simple as, oh, you guys eat too much fried foods, fast foods. But if you look at the number of fast food restaurants, in certain black communities compared to white communities. If you look at food deserts, even in 2021, where there are neighborhoods that have no access to fresh fruits and vegetables, if you look at crime rates and if you look at the lack of safe spaces to walk and you know no parks, no green spaces, then you begin to understand why there's increased obesity, which of course leads to everything else, diabetes, heart disease, high blood mm-hmm. pressure. So, you know, when we get when we when we begin to really look at that, then you begin to understand why equity means that certain communities actually need more. They need more resources. They need sometimes different resources. So that's really the kind of the crux of of health equity. And the only reason we even need to talk about health equity is because of the disparities or the differences in outcomes the differences in the prevalence of these diseases that, you know, we've been talking about in black and brown communities, you know, in other marginalized communities that, again, I got to say this again, due to racism, due to bias, Mm -hmm. due to the fact that 
Black and brown people and other marginalized communities receive different care, period. First of all, thank you for expl- for laying out the fact that equity and equality, when it, period, but especially when it comes to health, it's, it's not the same because I have to constantly remind people equity is the vessel that gets you to equality. Giving out the same thing to everybody doesn't help when there are people that are at a deficit or a surplus. And yes. Like it, it just, it doesn't work out. And I remember when I was reading the book Hood Feminism by Mickey Kendall. And I remember previously thinking about like when they said, okay, we're not going to do sodas anymore in schools and all these things. And I remember listening to this book and hearing her lay out like, well, but if somebody lives in a food desert and their water isn't safe to drink, soda might be one of the only things that they can actually access and it's cheap. And even though, yes, the sugar is high, the sugar is not as high as somebody's medium frappuccino extra whip with caramel drizzle on it. And it's, <laughs> and it's vilified. And so when someone that's drinking that frappuccino all of a sudden now has diabetes, it's like, oh, let's let's get you on the list. Let's let's find, try to find you a donor. Let's figure out what needs to happen for dialysis. Let's get you to do it at home. And someone in the black community that doesn't have the same level of access, of knowledge, of of anybody to be able to advocate for them, let alone even understanding that advocacy is something that matters because we have like this whole concept of like, I got to just live first. I can't even get to these other pieces. And it's like, oh, you black, you, you ate too much fried chicken. You ate too much collard greens. I know why you got all these things wrong with you. It's like, yes, uh, no, that's not what that is. And let's not put these stereotypes on it. Again, going back to that whole, you know, the inherent bias that it, you, you have it embedded in you and understanding how, it not only contributes to the problem, but it contributes to you processing how the problem came to fruition and how people are vilified or their 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 situations are processed as something that it really isn't. That is absolutely true. And and in that same vein, like you mentioned, Erica, you know, um, providers, healthcare providers, often without even knowing it, will make assumptions about whether someone from a t- particular community is able to, you know, comply, so to speak, with a particular treatment, whether they're deserving of a particular treatment, you know, as you said, based on how the provider assumes that they got there, you know, how, right. why they have the disease that they have. And so that translates into different options being offered, despite the fact that we have very clear medical guidelines that are issued by our specialty societies but there are studies after studies after studies that show that, you know, particularly with Black people, the care that is provided is different. It's not aligned with the guidelines and the standard of care that has already been established in medicine. And a lot of that has to do with bias and prejudice. So I want to hone in on the biases and the the prejudice because, For me, what happened, just to give a a, a short synopsis, I essentially ended up, I woke up one morning in immense pain, had pretty much everything you could think of wrong with you. I had no idea what it was. And lo and behold, it was a kidney stone. And in that initial time of going in through the emergency department and then having to have a procedure and then ending up (laughs) back in, in the emergency department and then having to get admitted in the hospital because the procedure that was done, they did not give me antibiotics. So I ended up with an infection. (sighs) And 
the first time that I went in, I had, you know, a, a nurse that essentially you could tell did not want to deal with me in any way, shape or form. She just kind of dropped the call box at my feet, walked out the room. You know, I, it just was nasty. But all right, I'm gonna let you slide. I feel like trash. But that second time when I got ill, I had a doctor that had performed a procedure that did not acknowledge, hey, we didn't get you this medication. Nobody that checked on you yesterday confirmed that you'd taken the medication and we're not going to take any responsibility. And then I ended up in the emergency department and I had a nurse that actually, and you can tell when someone's asking you something from an intake point of view versus uh, really trying to infer something. And I had a nurse that was like, are you on narcotics? Not knowing, like I am literally, like they admitted me because they're like, we don't even know if this infection's in your blood. Oh and I'm God. having somebody that's literally treating me like I'm drug seeking. As I listen to this person talk about someone else in the emergency department that they weren't giving drugs to. I laid in this room in the dark, not knowing what was happening with no blanket because they just left me there. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. What is happening right now? I'm in immense pain. I don't know what's going on. And I'm the one that's being treated like I'm the person that did something wrong. And I had no idea at that particular moment, literally, again, just like, I just want to be able to function. I want to not be vomiting. I want to not be in pain. And I had no idea what to do. I couldn't even consider what to do because I felt like I can't complain then they're just going to ignore me. Then they won't come back in the room. Then they're just going to act like I'm not here. They're overstaffed. So they could just forget about me, air quotes. Oh, gosh. And, you know, in that situation, I know that I'm not giving a story that no one else has has been in before. Unfortunately, I know there are people that have. And for myself and for those that have been in that situation and for those that hopefully never get there, but food for thought, are there any suggestions that you would give to someone that is in that type of a moment of like, you know, what do you do when you're like, I have no recourse. I'm, I'm screwed. First, let me say I am so incredibly sorry that that happened to you. That is completely unacceptable. And yes, it has happened to many before you. And unfortunately, Erica, it will happen to many after you as one of the things that I hope along with many of my colleagues who are in this health equity fight to, you know, to eliminate. Um, but as you mentioned, Erica, you know, this is the problem. There's already a power differential, unfortunately, in the healthcare system. And while, you know, the, the talk in the brochures and then the, you know, on the like, nice little patient signs and billboards, everybody's mm -hmm. talking about patient engagement, family-centered care, all that stuff. Um, you know, what we see in practice, particularly for those of us who look like you and I, are not those things a lot of times. I'm not going to say across the board because there are definitely some hospitals and health systems that are getting it right. right. But in many cases, there's still this traditional hierarchy in healthcare where the patient is at the bottom and, and um, the, the healthcare professionals, especially the physicians, are at the top. And, and what you just described, you know, being in this very vulnerable position where you are in pain, you are sick, it's very difficult to advocate for yourself in a healthcare setting when you don't feel well. 
And of course, right. most of us, that's when we're in the healthcare system is when we're not feeling well. And then you have COVID on top of that. So, you know, many times people aren't even able to bring that friend, that spouse, that significant right. other, their mother, their father, who traditionally are, even if they don't know it, they are our advocates, right? But now because of COVID, many of us find ourselves alone in these cold ER rooms with no blanket, which by the way, is just, that, I mean, that just has me over here so angry. <laughs> I mean, yeah. oh, so, I mean, you know, ideally, and again, this is tricky with COVID, but ideally I tell everybody that will listen to me that you should always have somebody with you when you present for medical care. And I'm not even just talking about emergencies, but even if you're just going for, you know, unless it's literally just a routine checkup, you think everything's fine. You know, if you're going to get the results of a test or you're going to follow up on a chronic health condition, and certainly if you're going because you're acutely ill, I think it's always best, if possible, to have someone with you. And the next best thing here in the COVID era is to have somebody on the phone, have somebody on FaceTime, you know, just so that there's, I hate to say witness, this sounds so bad. Not but, true. You know, to have a witness, but also to have somebody who can really kind of be your eyes and ears and who may be able to step in for you in the event that you are not necessarily able to do that for yourself. The other thing is, you know, it's really difficult to do this because the natural tendency and your right is to be angry when something like that happens. But, you know, as you alluded to, that can be a problematic, you know, if, if you have become belligerent, then they're really going to put you on the list of, oh, she's just seeking drugs. Now she's mad because we're not giving her drugs. And you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, and so as much as possible, trying to take the high road, because you can always, you know, later is when you can file that complaint and really tell them about themselves, but really trying to kind of find their humanity. Because at the end of the day, I will tell you this, Erica, I don't know a single doctor, nurse, tech, anybody in healthcare who went into it for any reason other than to help people. And unfortunately, and this is not to make excuses, but what has happened is because of the um, insurance issues and reimbursement and the challenges and the volume and COVID and burnout and all these things, people who normally are good people have just like they're stretched to their limit. But unfortunately, mm -hmm. patients and family members suffer as a result of that. So the reason I bring that up is that sometimes there's some there's things that we can say to kind of uh, reset. If for lack of a better word, and to tap mm -hmm. into that person's sense of humanity, you know? And so, you know, with my dad, just as an example, because I know, you know, he was a black man and I saw that sometimes there were assumptions being made about him. So <laughs> this may sound silly, but sometimes I would just throw out information about my dad. I may throw out, you know, where he went to college or that he was a retired police officer, or you know, maybe I'd just start striking up a conversation about my dad, about some trip that he had taken. And that was my way of just letting them know, like, this is a human. He's not the patient with diabetes. He's not the guy in room 54. You know, this dude, this is a, this is a human. This is my dad. He has children. He has grandchildren. He, you know, saved lives when he was, uh, you know, uh, employed and things like that. Um, and, and so sometimes that can help. And sometimes even mentioning something about them, or, you know, and I mean, I hate to even tell people to do this because it makes me angry that that we have to do these types of things. But 
sometimes those things just kind of remind the person like, oh, this is actually a human being that I'm talking to. You know what I mean? Or even acknowledging, I've said to doctors who are rushing in and out of my dad's room, you look really busy. You look really stressed out. I'm sorry. Like, are you having a bad day today? And you'd right. be surprised, like their whole <laughs> facial expression. <laughs> right. And like, oh my gosh. Like, first of all, they're shocked because people don't usually ask them, like, how are you doing? Right. And then they take their hand off the doorknob and they turn around like, you know what? It has been a rough day. Thank you so much for asking. And it right. just changes the energy in the room. Right. Right. And and this is where, while I have to acknowledge that, again, the two times that I had to go through the emergency department, you know, what were kind of the after effects of when I had my outpatient procedure, uh, those particular things did not go well. However, when I was admitted, once I actually got in my room, I could not have asked for better when it came to the healthcare professionals that I was coming in contact with as, as far as like, you know, the nursing staff, they were kind, they were empathetic. They talked to me as, as a human, you know, how are you? Is anybody coming in to see you? Do you need anything? They were night and day oh, from wow. the other experience that I had. And so when I did have to you know, go through patient advocacy and acknowledge the experiences that I had with individuals that nobody should have received. I also felt like it was important to create that real strong line of, but over here, who I've interacted with, how they've supported me, how they've humanized me has been, I, n nobody wants to be in the hospital, but I couldn't have, have asked for better in that moment with as bad as I felt. And as, as, as victimized as I felt by some of those other individuals, these, these people were so kind. And I, I did notice that there were times where they were like, Oh, you're actually like talking to me and you're <laughs> actually listening and having a conversation before the medicine puts you back to sleep again. And, <laughs> you know, there was just a very different interaction there. And, and there were, sub nurses that I saw, you know, uh, more than one time and them being like, Hey, you know, you're still here. How are you doing? And it was like, Oh, thank you. Please treat me like a human because yes, during COVID it's very different. You couldn't have people just coming in. And so it did feel very isolating. And I think that it, it is important to acknowledge that while there are some that are stretched, um, have their own biases showing up, are, are not doing their jobs well. There are also a lot of them that are, and I don't want either uh, individual to end up getting lumped with the other. Yes. I'm so glad that things shifted for you once you were actually hospitalized and, and in your room. And I'm again, I'm just so sorry that that happened to you. And I'm glad that you complained through the channels that that were available. Right. Right. And that's where, you know, I, I think you laid out a lot of really good pieces of, you know, some of the places to to ask those questions and what it means to humanize um, this this individual that that you love or have an affinity for to this healthcare professional. Like, hey, they might be a patient to you, but this is this person has a name and, yeah. and, a, and a place in my life. Like, let's talk about that. Let's humanize them. And you know, unfortunately having to have these places where we don't take no for an answer. And I think being reminded that it's not only okay to do it, but it is highly suggested mm -hmm. to do that. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, that is huge. So 
as we begin to wrap up, which I don't want to, cause I could talk to you all day because everything <laughs> we're talking about needs to be talked about. I would love for you to share um, maybe one action that you think you would want people to take or something that you would want them to keep in mind when it comes to being able to better navigate healthcare for themselves or for those that they are supporting. Okay, I'm going to cheat a little bit and I'm going to give you one kind of mindset shift and then one action. Is that okay? Yes, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> so the mindset shift that I want to leave with your audience is that you are the expert for your body, your health condition. And if you are a family caregiver, you are the expert for that family member. And I'm saying this to you as a physician, because I went to four years of college and I had four years of medical school, three years of pediatric residency and 20 years of practice. So I know a lot about pediatric medicine, but guess what? The expert for my patients were the parents. And, you know, no matter how much medical education we have, we're not inside of your body. And what's normal for you may not be what's normal for someone else. What I think is normal for patients in general may not be what's normal for you. And so I need you all to understand that you are the expert. So many times you may be dismissed, your, your concerns may be dismissed. And we have this saying in medicine that, you know, sometimes the patients don't read the textbooks, meaning sometimes patients will present in a way that is different than what we learned, what we read about. And that doesn't mean that you don't have what you think you have. That doesn't mean that you're fine, as some people will tell you. So that's the mindset shift. And, and just take that with you every single time you go to the doctor, whether it's an outpatient setting at the doctor's office, whether you're going to urgent care, the ER, just always know that you are the expert, trust your gut. And the action step I would say is to prepare for your doctor visits. We do a lot of preparation for a lot of things, you know, trips that we take and of course things like, you know, weddings and other milestones. But many of us, you know, we have a doctor's appointment, it's on our calendar, we look up, oh, it's time to go, we rush out the door. But we need to prepare for doctor visits and really for any encounter outside of emergencies with the healthcare system. And part of that preparation is um, being knowledgeable about your underlying health conditions, being aware of the medications that you take, you know, not being able to fully provide the information. So not saying I take a blue pill, oh yeah, I take a little white pill, but actually knowing the names of your medications, being able to communicate effectively about your symptoms, you know, having something written down maybe about, okay, Last Thursday on this particular date, I started with a headache. Two days later, I started having abdominal pain as opposed to being you know, convoluted and well, I think maybe this happened. So being very knowledgeable about your health conditions or the person for whom you care, extremely important. Writing down your questions. So many times you know, we're rushed in and out of these appointments and then we get home and we go, oh my gosh, there were like two things I really wanted to ask yes. at Rochester, but I forgot. So writing down your questions ahead of time, taking notes during the visit or, or asking permission to record so that you have that information, because a lot of it you're going to forget, especially if you're getting bad news. So those are my tips. So just really being prepared and, and kind of treating uh, doctor's appointments and other encounters as like a homework assignment that you have to turn in 
and um, knowing that the outcome is your health. Like you're not getting a, well, you are getting a grade. Your grade is your health. And taking <laughs> that very, very seriously would be my one action step. That, all that, that was huge. And it's a reminder to me. I can definitely see where I can do better as the patient and advocating for myself before it gets to a point that I need someone else to support me with that advocacy. And I, I'm sure that everybody can find something in there to make healthcare easier for themselves as well as those that they're supporting. And so for everything that you just gave from the tangible to the mindset, as well as your time and your expertise, Nicole, thank you so, so much. And before we go, please tell everybody, Dr. Rochester, where they can learn more about you and follow you and support you. Thank you, Erica. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for inviting me. People can find me on my website. So my company is Your GPS Doc. The website is www.yourgpsdoc.com. And you can also follow me on Instagram or Facebook or both at Your GPS Doc or uh, The GPS Doc. Those are both of my accounts on Instagram and Facebook. I have a TEDx talk. You can look, look that up on YouTube where I talked about something I call the 90 second encounter, which really has to do with humanizing patients and doctors and spending a 90 seconds just getting to know one another on a personal level. So you can find my TEDx talk on YouTube if you just search Nicole Rochester. And thanks again for this opportunity, Erica. I really appreciate it. Again, this was amazing for everything that you've shared with us, everything that you do on a regular basis, and for you teaching us how to do better for ourselves and those that we love. Thank you so much, Nicole. You're welcome. Oh my gosh, Nicole, like I could have talked to her all day, just on a human level. However, just having that that moment of, you know, full transparency, it was really difficult for me when I was sick. And there were points that I was like, am I missing something? Did I do something wrong? And to have her kind of just witness me in that moment and as a medical professional to acknowledge, like, I'm, I'm sorry that this happened to you and that it, it wasn't just me. That was so validating and so necessary. And I am just so grateful to, you know, the member of our community that connected me with her because these are not conversations that are had often enough. And, you know, in our community, we do talk about what it is to support healthcare and mental health and figuring out, you know, what are some ways that we can collaborate on creating change together and being connected with Nicole is, is an absolute example of that because she, first of all, let me know that I, I kind of just thought that the, patient advocate was someone that you talked to within the hospital's um, structure. And to know that this is also something that you have access to outside of that entity was extremely helpful. And it was very validating and very necessary. And I hope that those of you listening will take that away as well. And to know that your feelings and your experiences and your health and you as a human matter. And this is why it's so important to have these conversations and to have them openly with others and to be able to know that you can be a part of the change. This is why community is so important. So for any of you that are not already a member of Pause on the Play the Community, I would love to have you be 
that today, <laughs> come on over to pauseonaplay.com forward slash community. You can learn more about it and you can join today so that you can be a part of sharing how you want to create the change that you know we can all benefit from. So for being here, for listening to this conversation, to all the conversations and really being able to take in us talking candidly, I appreciate you and I'm grateful for you for knowing that this is one of the ways that we cross lines and recreate boundaries in order to support and not separate. Again, for doing that and being here with me, I thank you. Let's continue getting more people dropping the veil and challenging their thoughts, feelings, and actions. We love being here, creating the bridge for you to walk over to become the change that you want to see. So until the next time, keep the dialogue going. Bye. Ready to get clear on what matters? Let's do this. From implicit to explicit is a framework that helps you to get clear on what matters and how it informs the way you live and lead in your workplace. Whether it's focusing on the team building and connection that can happen when you talk about what matters to you as a person or how it informs the outcomes that you seek in your business, it can all completely change the game. Having clarity on what your values are and how this shapes the way your work creates the foundation for every action that you take, and then sharing this information across your team explicitly. This is what creates confidence and integrity in what it is that you are creating and sharing with the world. Visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash explicit to learn more about this collaborative and interactive workshop and sign up today. Ready to lead through your values?